0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Thursday, April 1st, 2021. On today's episode of the show, we're going to be gathering around the virtual water cooler and talking about what we've been up to. My name is Ben Pearson. I'm the senior writer at SlashFilm.com, and I'm joined on today's episode by Slash Film Managing Editor Jacob Hall. Hello, hello. Weekend Editor Brad Oman. Hey, that's me. And writer is White Trampouille. Hey, everyone. And Chris Evangelista. Hello. All right, everyone. Welcome. Uh, it's April Fool's Day, so I guess we're gonna try to dodge whatever nonsense we can from that, and, and get through this thing. Okay, so let's let's jump into the water cooler and talk about what we've been doing. Jacob, let's start with you. What have you been doing recently?
1: Well, now that I'm two vaccines in and two weeks past after the second shot, I went back to a movie theater. And I'll talk about that movie uh, soon enough. But it was my first time in a movie theater since onward in early 2020. And it was very peculiar. I did at an Animal Draft House, and they have very extensive seat buffering. When you buy your seat online, it like, almost creates a buffer of, of several seats between you and anybody else who could buy them. And you order your food in advance. Like, you literally, when you buy a ticket, you put in, I want popcorn and I want soda. And so when you arrive, it's brought out to you. You have to worry about, you know, trying to make orders or endanger anybody further. And it was really great. I had a great time being back to the movies. And of course, you should only go back when you feel safe, when you are vaccinated and had those two weeks. But I was really happy to be back at movie theater. It was a really, really good feeling. And I know theaters are in trouble, and I'm really hoping they rebound. And the box office numbers for Godzilla vs. Kong are promising. And I plan to see that this weekend, you know, on the big screen rather than HBO Max, because damn it, I really like movies on the big screen. And I really like that I live in a town that has theaters that have good quality. And it it's a really surreal feeling that this is a long as I've gone in my entire life without seeing a movie in a movie theater. And mm-hmm. it's just just I it it was like going home in a <laughs> wanted to break out of cliche. Mm-hmm. But it, it was it was very special and I'm very happy that I'm I'm in the position to be able to go back safely. Yeah, man. I think you know,
0: we probably talked on a previous episode uh, on this podcast about like our expectations for when we might be back in movie theaters. And I think at one point I was saying, I don't think I'm going to be back in a the theater in 2021, but I think the vaccine rollout has gone so much you know quicker than I anticipated. Um, I'm halfway vaccinated. So I, I feel like, you know, yeah, uh, several weeks, uh, it won't be long before I actually have a chance to, to get back in the theater. So I'm excited. I'm, I'm jealous you've had that experience. I'm glad for you. Um, and I, I look forward to all of, all of, us going back into theaters when it's, uh, normal and safe to do so. So, um, all right, let's get into what we've been reading. Jacob, what have you been reading? You're the only one who's been, uh, cracking open the pages of a book
1: recently. Yeah, I'm really enjoying a book called, this is how you make a movie by Tim Grierson. And it's essentially a, in many ways, a film school one-on-one textbook, but the best film school one-on-one textbook I've perhaps ever seen is a jaded, um, film website editor, uh, there's nothing in here that's super new, but it's, but it's also, but it's really entertainingly laid out. The idea is that it's via the chapters, you know, chapters like, you know, lighting and camera. I'm flipping through right now. Um, or editing or writing. And each section will have like several pages dedicated to a specific type of filmmaking concept. Like for example, in the lighting and camera section, open up to a key light and fill light or low light, a uh, golden hour, the steady cam or the um, editing section. Um, opening that one non-diegetic sound uh jump cuts uh smash cuts and each one of these has three or four pages dedicated to exploring what these are with photographs from movies and not just like saying oh a a jump cut is this it'll have three examples from three different movies uh for example um smash cut for example explains what a smash cut is a one page then has um lawrence of arabia 2001 space odyssey uh, and North by Northwest as examples. And it has like half a page plus photos dedicated to explaining what it is and how they function. Like for example, in case of my space odyssey, a mammoth time jump. In the case of uh, North by Northwest, a wonderful innuendo. In the case of uh of, of Arabia, a dazzling new locale. And the idea being that it, it's not just, you know, trying to fun. it's not trying to like just academically explain how these basic filmmaking concepts work, but it's, it's actually using... Examples from movies, both classic and modern, to fundamentally make it clear: here's why these work. You've seen it before, and here's why they're powerful in different ways. And like, this open on random pages, like Reservoir Dogs, Before Sunset, Wonder Woman, uh, Deadpool is in here in a section about breaking the fourth wall. And I'm just trying to imagine like somebody who's like you know 15, 16 years old who who wants to know why movies work and how they work, and doesn't want to <laughs> spend a hundred dollars on a boring textbook mm-hmm. full of technical terms when this book exists and gives you hundreds of examples of why film techniques work using the movies you've already seen and love. And it's a, such a cool like crystal clear, like galaxy brain idea of like explaining how movies work using movies you've seen that everybody's seen. Uh, I think it's such a, such a neat thing. I'm really glad it exists. And I'm really glad to have it on my shelf. It sounds like a great gift idea for people yeah and it's like i said like it's like 20 25 bucks and it's like i said i i i went to film school i had, i i have a bachelor's degree in film and television and i wish i had this book back then because most of my textbooks were utter crap that cost me 150 dollars <laughs> whereas this one uh has more to teach you about how movies function for like a fraction of the price nice all right, let's get into what we've been watching. Chris and I
0: watched a movie called "The China Syndrome" from 1979. The stars uh, Michael Douglas, Jane Fonda, and Jack Lemmon. Um, and Chris, I'll throw it to you. What did you think about this movie? I really dug it. I I, uh,
2: I confess that I don't watch enough older films. Like I fall into this rut. I didn't used to be like this. I don't know when it happened or how it happened, but I fall into this rut where I'm like consistently watching newer things even though i have like the criterion channel and i'm always like i need to get off my ass and get back to watching things made before you know the 80s and uh i saw this bit on there and i had never seen it and i had heard good things about it and so i watched it and I, I really dug it it's a great little paranoid uh upsetting thriller and um jack lemon is, is so good in it like i mean you know i've always liked jack lemon but this is like one of those rare times where he's, I mean, I know him primarily from comedic work, even though that's not all he did, but this is one of his more dramatic roles. And he's so good at, it, at like nailing down this character who, who uh, works in a, a nuclear power plant and is convinced there's, there are bad things a coming. And when I, I when I was reading up on this film, I, what I found so interesting about it, it was, it was made at this time where people we're like, ah, this is, you know, that's fear mongering. Nuclear power is safe. And then like, I think like a week after the movie came out, there was an actual nuclear power plant meltdown. And everyone was like, oh, never mind. This movie is actually knows what it's talking about. So uh, it's, it's an interesting little like time capsule into this period where people were like, you know, don't worry about it. Everything will be fine. <laughs>
0: Yeah, it's a really remarkable movie for, you know, for all the meta stuff around it, the timing, like you mentioned, 12 days before uh, the Three Mile Island nuclear accident occurred. And then this came out, I think, six years before uh, Chernobyl. And Chernobyl, like the events of of that uh, accident were recently dramatized in that uh, really great HBO series. Um, but that show sort of had the benefit of hindsight and like all of these you know years worth of documents and eyewitness accounts and government records and testimonies and stuff to dig through in order to tell that story. And this, I don't really think there had been any significant nuclear um, accidents, uh, you know, up to the point that this movie was made. Um, So the fact that it came out 12 days before, you know, a a big one happened in the US is kind of shocking. Um, So I, I kind of look at this movie weirdly as a cross between Chernobyl, the the show and Anchorman a little bit, because Jane Fonda is sort of the, the main character here as this journalist who, um, is trying to tell this story of what, of this, of this accident that she and her, her freelance cameraman played by Michael Douglas, uh, th- that they witnessed while they were visiting this power plant. And like all of her male superiors are like, so just blatantly sexist to her and like, or against her and, and just, uh, don't take what she says seriously at all and want her to just go back to, you know, doing fluff pieces and like looking good on camera basically. So it's a little bit of a, a Veronica Corningstone vibe going on in there too. Um, but yeah, Lemon is, is really great in this. And um, I, I would recommend this to anybody. It's it's like shockingly relevant, um, you know, for the time that it was released, but also like, you know, even taking, stripping away all of the, the sort of relevancy and, and stuff from that period. It just works as a really, really great, like entertaining, little pot boiling thriller. So it's
2: also it's also one of those movies from the era when actors didn't have to be like <laughs> perfect looking. Like, obviously, Jane Fonda is gorgeous and, you know, Jane Fonda always looks good, but everyone else in this movie just looks really like schlubby and like Wilfred Brimley is in it and like yeah. it's like i miss that era when you could have like an entire like, almost like an entire cast where everyone is just like normal looking for lack of a better term where it's just like everyone's not like like if they made this movie now like everyone working at the PowerPoint would be like super ripped and right. like really attractive looking and I, you know, I missed that era when you could like have like basically an entire movie of character actors. And then Jane Fonda is also
0: there. <laughs> yeah. This is a very rumpled movie. <laughs> you could call it. Yeah. So, um, all right. So I think, uh, so Chris, you and I watched this on uh, criterion channel and I would, I think it just disappeared from that streaming service like overnight. Uh, yeah, they, they had
2: like a bunch of Jane Fonda titles last month and then they all expired, which is annoying. And I hate, cause I hadn't, lo- I, re- there was a bunch of was being to get to, and I never did because I'm an idiot.
0: I <laughs> yeah. I, I I missed, all, missed out on the rest of those as well. Um, but I, I think you can watch this on Pluto TV with ads. I honestly don't know what that is, but... Um, th- you made
2: that up, man. That's an <laughs> April Fool's joke. There's no Pluto TV.
0: Uh, so maybe if you uh, were intrigued by any of what we said and want to seek this movie out, which again, I would highly recommend. Maybe you can do some research and figure out what Pluto TV is. Alright, let's get into our next movie, which is King Express. Uh, Chris, HC and I all watched this movie. So since you and I have been talking already, Chris. Let's throw this to H.T. first. What did you think about this one, H.T.?
3: Oh, well, I didn't realize that you guys all watched it together. Wow, we should have had a movie night. I know. <laughs> um, but yes, I got the Wong Kar Wai uh, Criterion Collection set of his uh, seven movies, I think. And I had only seen uh, In the Mood for Love and then one of his more recent movies, The Grand Master. So I really wanted to check out one of his more uh, beloved, famous films, which is Chungking Express. And I, I love this movie. It's just got such a wild um, Gen X energy. I actually was quite surprised to see how Gen X it was. There's just a lot of, um, electricity, color, the camera's always moving and uh, there's always some sort of blur effect going on. And there's just, um, this excitement about being young and about being in your twenties. Um, at the same time, it's this, uh, it's a movie, it's a movie about like Sort of lovesick people in Hong Kong, and that ennui that kind of comes from, uh, from being lovesick and for yearning for that kind of connection with someone, and those brief connections that you make, and how magical they can be, and how strange sometimes and awkward they can be, um, and uh, it's it's just a a wonderful both like portrait of the time as well as being uh something that I love with Wong Kar Wai is that it's just that quintessential yearning that pining that he does so well, and I'm gonna take a little time right now to talk about Tony Lung's face um specifically in the last like few minutes of this movie, in like this one shot when he's reunited uh with Fei Wong's character and there's a oh, this wonderful moment where he is. You can tell he's so happy to see her. He's sort of like brimming with with joy, but um, he and he gives this. He flashes this like crooked smile that almost, if you weren't watching, you would you might miss it because it's gone in a second. And it's it's this smile is just full of so much hope and excitement and a little bit of trepidation and uh, melancholy at the same time. And it's just like this tiny little crooked smile. And he manages to convey so much in that smile. Um, and it's one of my favorite sort of little acting performance things where it's something that doesn't seem intentional. It seems like the actor, the, the character is trying to hold this emotion back. And in failing to do so, it it uh, conveys a more genuine and more real emotion than anything that would be more showy. So it's
0: uh, it's big. Um, Ethan Hawke tr- almost touching Julie Delpy's hair in the yes. backseat and before sunset. Energy. I love
3: it. It's like it's something that like requires the audience's attention. And it invites you to be part of that. And um, Tony Lung's face, his his l- little crooked smile. Just I just I've been thinking about it ever since I watched it. So it's it's great.
0: Chris, what did you think about Chungking Express?
2: Uh, yeah, I mean, HT sounded up really well. I I I I loved it. I didn't like it as much as In the Mood for Love. I think that is a better film than this. And uh, I'm not even sure where to go next in this box set. I mean, I, sh- I probably just could have gone should have gone in order, like a sane person. But I, I'm like I I already broke the order, so I'm, I can't go back <laughs> and start at the beginning because my mind won't let me do that. Um, but yeah, this is this is a wonderful film. If I had one complaint, it would be there is a constant use of the song California Dreaming. <laughs> and while I, I understand why um, about like the hundredth time it played, I was like, man, I'm getting sick of this fucking song. Like, <laughs> Cause it, it plays all constantly and it always starts at the same spot, like literally the beginning of the song. And it's like, it gets to a point where I I, I was like, I really don't want them to play this song anymore. <laughs> but that's like the only real complaint I can level against this. But yeah, wonderful film.
0: That's such a key song to this movie. And I feel like I had the same thing and then somehow I came back around on it. Like they they wore me down with that use of that song. Like I, I went through that uh, that set of emotions and then by the time, you know, they just played it so many times and it clearly means so much to the Fei Wong character that – I Eventually came around on it, and I, I just don't think I'll, I'm ever going to be able to hear that song again without thinking about this movie. Um, which is, uh, yeah, I mean, a, a testament to how much it's used in this film, but also just like the the way that it's like intrinsically linked with her character and this desire she has. And, and like HT said, that that sort of like um youthful energy that is so great. Um, I, I had no idea what this movie is about going into it. I, I, frankly, I watched this guy, I watched this movie because you guys last week were talking about In the Mood for Love, and I knew that this was on uh, streaming on the Criterion channel. I don't have the the box set, but this, this title is streaming there. So if you have a subscription, you can watch it. And um, I had no idea what this is, was about. And I pressed play and I was shocked to see that it, it was kind of, you know, it had that two story structure to it where like the first half of the movie is completely <laughs> like a whole separate narrative from the second half. So that was just like a, I, I can't remember the last time I saw a movie like that where there wasn't really like a big connection between the two. It was just sort of um, vignettes. Yeah, it's almost like more of a, a they're linked by, by a mood almost or by emotions or something instead of through like uh, narrative connections, which is interesting. And um, so I just, yeah, I wanted to comment on that real quick. So that is Chunking Express that's streaming on the uh, Criterion channel right now. Um, okay, so I, I watched uh, two more movies. I watched Big Night, which is uh, co-directed by Stanley Tucci and Campbell Scott. So last week, Chris was talking about the, uh, Stanley Tucci uh, travel show. What is it called, Chris? What's the official name of it? Do you remember? I think it's called
2: Stanley Tucci Searching for Italy. I'm an idiot. I should actually have this. Stanley Tucci Searching for Italy is the name of the show. So, yeah. Okay.
0: So um, I have not watched that show yet, but uh, my wife and I are planning to do that. And then we found out that Stanley Tucci made this movie in 1999. 1990- excuse me, 1996 called big night. That is a, a food movie, uh, for lack of a better term. And, uh, we decided to watch this before we uh, dove into the searching for Italy show. And this film stars Stanley Tucci as, uh, the main character, uh, his name is Secondo, and he, uh, is the brother of, uh, it's him and uh, Tony Shalhoub playing brothers who are, uh, Italian immigrants who live in the United States. And they have opened this Italian restaurant. And, um, basically they're they're struggling financially and they uh they there's a a rival italian restaurant across the street that is owned by a guy played by ian holm from uh, who i know best probably from the lord of the rings movies uh and alien a bunch of other things uh and ian holm's character is sort of this like sleazebag guy who's like you know a little bit of a chris you've seen this movie how would you describe ian holmes character in this film
2: uh he's an asshole i guess what you're trying to <laughs> like he's he like so the stanley tucci tony Shalhoub restaurant is like slow restaurant is like the uh the old school authentic italian style and then ian holmes is like the the corporate italian
0: restaurant yeah. if you will
2: it's like you know like the little guy versus the big guy
0: yeah there's like jazz music in in the Ian home place and and um the Shalhoub and Tucci place is all about like the quality of the food. And, and, um, it's not as much about like the, the wine and dine yeah, atmosphere and all that kind of stuff. Anyway, uh, uh, Holmes character basically says, Hey, I've got this, you know, friend of mine, who's a, a really famous jazz singer, who's going to be in town and I can help you guys out with your small business and tell him to eat at your restaurant. And that will like get word around town that, that you guys will, you know, that you guys have a great restaurant and a bunch of people will come and all of that kind of stuff. So, this, the whole movie is about this big night, this, this night where this guy is supposed to show up and everything is going to be great. And they have this big party and it's all, um, it's like, it's very much a process movie in terms of like, you get to see them going to like a a farmer's market kind of thing and picking out all the ingredients for the stuff that they're going to make. And, um, it's a lot of, uh, while the, the restaurant is not necessarily as much about presentation, this movie is very much about presentation. It's about the creation of this food and like how that is sort of, um, it's this allegory for creating art. And it's kind of, it reminds me of a little bit of a John Favreau's chef in that way, where like the entire film, you could look at it as a, a uh, metaphor for, um, you know, being in a creative pursuit and like what sort of sacrifices you might have to make for uh, people who don't understand the, the creative vision that you have. And um, you know, the relationships that sort of fall by the wayside when you get so zeroed in on reaching this creative goal and um, all of these sort of great, Uh, connections and and sort of parallels that you can find there. So uh, the movie is called big night. I would definitely recommend it. It's really great. It will make you want to eat a ton of Italian food. Um, But yeah, it's, it's pretty wonderful. So um, I think this is streaming on canopy. If you have a a library card, you can, access that uh through canopy so i would encourage you to seek that out um all right and then the last movie that i watched uh i saw an american werewolf in london for the first time i've never seen this movie i know this is a, a chris favorite i think jacob you probably have some some fond uh, feelings for this one as well am i remembering that correctly uh yeah it's one of the best movies ever made <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it's, it's very good. I have no hot takes on this. Um, I, this is a movie that I've just been hearing about for my entire life. And for some reason, I just never got around to seeing it. And, uh, it is on HBO max right now. Um, I actually started watching, uh, national lampoons, a loaded weapon one for some reason. I was like, all right, I'm, I'm in the mood for a comedy. And the, the first scene was so bad that I turned it off like eight minutes in and immediately just it it killed my mood for comedy so much that I just went in a hard pivot in a different direction and decided to watch an American werewolf in London. And I feel like this was funny though. (laughs) Yeah. And, and I feel like this is the better, uh, experience, but yeah, it, this movie is, they call it a, a black comedy and I didn't really think it was like that funny, but yes, it is, it is definitely lighthearted. Um, and, uh, it's, it's lighthearted
2: ish. Um, yeah, yeah,
0: it, it, I think that's the right. I, I lighthearted in, you know, as opposed to an out and out you know, like a raucous laugh riot or something. Um, but, you know, the the big centerpiece of this movie is this like incredible prosthetic transformation sequence that I've seen out of context, but just watching it in the context of this movie just makes it so much more impressive. And um, God, the effects in this are, are just unreal. Like they literally do not make movies like this anymore where- you can it's just so tactile i mean again i have zero hot takes on this this is something that people have probably been talking about since 1981 when this came when this came out um but just the uh the tactile nature of this movie and and being able to like really feel and experience the pain and and uh like stretching of the bones and like the sound design is so great in that scene and it's it sort of like really uh, taps into how horrible it must be if this was a real thing, if you were a werewolf um, as opposed to just, you know, a character goes behind a tree and then emerges as a, you know, as a furry version of a human kind of thing. It's a, it's a um, movie that really leans into the, the
1: horrific nature of, of what it would be like. So uh, great stuff. When when I interviewed uh, Edgar Wright a few years ago for baby driver, we talked about uh, our favorite musical uh, song drops in movies, and he called the uh, cut to end credits with the with the, with the use of a uh, blue moon mm-hmm. um, at, at, the, at the end of this movie the greatest uh, song drop in movie history. Uh, <laughs> I think I may agree.
2: Yeah, you know, I, I, I actually rewatched this recently too. I haven't talked about it. I want to like, but I don't know if it's because I'm like getting older now and I'm like thinking about death a lot more. Sorry to break everyone down, but, but like the I I it never occurred to me how gut-punching the ending of this movie is until like now-ish like i guess i was just like a young dumb idiot i was like ha 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 i'm gonna live forever and now, now i'm like approaching my 40s and it ends on this incredibly bleak note and then it cuts this like upbeat song and it 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 kind of made me like miserable <laughs> watching it recently because i was just like oh this is more depressing than I remember
0: it being. I was very taken aback by the ending and and kind of surprised that the movie has like the, well, I guess the I guess the, uh, the prosthetic scene and the transformation scene is, is so powerful that of course, this movie is going to have such a great reputation. But the ending is not something that I'd ever heard about before. I never really hear people discussing that uh, element of it. And my God, it was just, yeah, like you said, it really felt like a gut punch. And it, it's one of those things, like I talk a lot about like, you know, older movies, you know, especially from like the the 30s, 40s, 50s, they just end. And this movie does that, but then it has the, the sort of nerve to like really like twist the knife that it's just jammed in your back, but with the, the choice of that song there. So, uh, yeah, I can see how somebody like Edgar Wright would, would appreciate that. Um, you know, on just a, uh, yeah, like a, a pure sort of um, visceral reaction kind of level. Um, but man, I was I was not expecting the, this movie to end in quite that way. So uh, yeah, <laughs> it's still a very, very good movie. So American Werewolf in London is streaming on HBO Max right now if you want to check that out. Um, Jacob,
1: let's go to you. What have you been watching? I just want to keep talking about American Werewolf in London. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, the movie I saw in theaters was Nobody, the new Bob Odenkirk action movie. And Unlike Ben and Chris, I really like this, like a lot like this. Like, not John Wick Love, but I'd say three quarters John Wick Love. I think this movie is so much fun. It's 92 minutes, it has no time to waste. It's Bob Odenkirk. For five minutes, you're like, ah, Bob Odenkirk. Then you completely buy him as this retired assassin turned family man who's dusting off his skills and forced to kill a Russian mobsters. The action is so cleanly shot. From the director of Hardcore Henry, a movie that I have really complex feelings on because it's so ambitiously made but really not even a movie. Whereas here it's an actual story full of characters. I found myself enjoying watching and a uh, grade a plus use of Christopher Lloyd. I was not prepared for how well <laughs> nobody would use Christopher Lloyd. Uh, I think nobody is super fun and it was a great way to be back in theaters. So I'm not saying Chris and Ben are wrong, but they are incorrect.
2: You know, Jacob, I don't, and I don't want to say your opinion is wrong uh, because it's obviously <laughs> not, but I wonder like, if the experience elevated the whole thing for you, because like you were just saying, you know, before we got even to the movie section, that it was your first time being back in a movie theater, and I was, I'm wondering if maybe that adrenaline high made the movie even better for you. Because I've been in that situation where I'll see something at like a film festival, and the 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 audience is just so electric, and I'd be like, "This is a fucking great movie," and then I'll like watch it on Blu-ray a year later, and I'd be like, "This is not as good as I remember it being."
1: I thought long and hard about this. and But when, when I say you two are incorrect, I, I'm definitely tongue-in-cheek. I'm absolutely joking. I don't mean to actually – it's not an actual insult. No, of course, yeah. yeah. But I, I really have thought about this. And I used to be super susceptible to festival stuff like that, Chris. Uh, and I think over the years, I've sort of weaned myself off it just enough to be – to recognize when it's happening. And I genuinely do not think it's happened with nobody. I think I actually really like nobody. All right. Is so, that Fair uh, enough. Yeah. But we'll see. We'll, let's, let's revisit this in a year. Let's revisit I'll see this. you
2: in court and then
1: <laughs> – but I, I recommend Nobody. If you, if you are fully vaccinated and comfortable being back in a the theater, I think Nobody is a really terrific action movie. Uh, I also watched Zodiac uh, for uh, the 20th time because it's David Fincher's best movie, and it's great. And because HT and I uh, host that Star Trek and Doctor Who podcast, and Zodiac is only David Fincher movie to have a direct Star Trek reference <laughs> embedded in it because uh, <laughs> Brian Cox's character. Uh, the lawyer, the celebrity lawyer, uh, Melvin Belli plays a villain in a very terrible episode of Star Trek that she and I recorded an episode about. And, uh, they referenced an episode in the, in Zodiac where, where a character turns to Brian Cox's Melvin Belli and talks to him about his episode of Star Trek. So that, I, I rewatched that scene for the sake of research for the podcast. And then I, I just started it over and watched the whole movie because Zodiac is that good. So, uh, Real quick, round the table. Zodiac is Fincher's best movie, right?
2: Absolutely, no, not even like I don't think it's even a question. For in my opinion, it's his best. It's the one I always, I will always rewatch that movie if I am not giving a chance. It's so fucking good.
0: It's very good. I I would have to rewatch all of his stuff. I think because uh, I I haven't watched them all in a in a chunk and like put them up against each other like that. I love Gone Girl. Um, man, I don't know. Yeah, yeah, that's a tough one.
3: Yeah, I. I haven't seen it since it came out, so I I can't. I, it is very very good, so I don't really know if I would rank it like at the top yet. But I'm sure if I rewatched all of them again, it would be probably very high up there.
4: Yeah, it has uh, a daunting runtime, so I haven't revisited it as often as I probably would normally do for for other movies. And I also just just absolutely love Social Network, but but Zodiac is still phenomenal no matter which way you slice it.
1: Anyway, if you want a truly strange double feature, uh, watch Zodiac. Then immediately followed by, or before, uh, the Star Trek Season 3 episode and the children's show lead. I don't know
3: if you want to watch that episode, really.
1: (laughs) You absolutely should not watch that unless you hate yourself. But uh, that's what I did a few days (laughs) ago. I also uh, watched Season 3 of Formula 1 Drive to Survive. I've talked about this on the podcast before. It is probably at this point the single best sports documentary series ever made it really is the equivalent of the NBA or the NFL letting camera crews into the locker rooms to document all their players being completely candid about their season and no punches pulled. And it's just the, the summary of a formula one season. Each season over 10 episodes tells you like who won and what, what, what a race has happened. This is a COVID season and it's super interesting to see how everybody reacts to that, how it changes the culture of the one, how certain teams don't survive the entire season. And, I don't even watch formula one. I I, I'm tempted to maybe check it out every so often because I love this show so much, but the stories here, especially season three are absolutely remarkable. I think episode nine of season three, if you wrote that as a screenplay and sent it in as fiction, people would say, no, that's the most unrealistic sports story I've, I've ever heard. Uh, but Formula One Drive to Survive, is, they have cameras there for all the dark, weird, funny, strange moments that you'd want to see in a sports team. But Or if you consider driving Formula One cars to be sports, which I, I do at this point. Uh, but yeah, this show is great. I think Formula One Drive to Survive is absolutely fantastic. Maybe one of the best original things Netflix makes. And uh, I'm eagerly awaiting more Formula One Drive to Survive in a year after they finish the uh, filming the current season of Formula One and getting everybody's dirty, backstabbing notes about who they hate, which teams (laughs) they they, basically suck. (laughs) Uh, Also, just a real quick note, uh, Made for Love is streaming today, the first three episodes of the HBO Max series I talked about last week. I have since seen the first four episodes. That's really good. I interviewed uh, the series showrunner, one of the directors, and the writer-slash-author of the original book. And just letting you know, uh, this sci-fi comedy series is really deranged and really funny. And Chris Melody rules in it. And the first three episodes are streaming now. So look for the interview hopefully tomorrow, but in the meantime, I can vouch for the show being absolutely worth your time. And the first three episodes are going to be very easy to binge. It, um, it really does reward you piling into one after another. Uh, and finally, I went over to a friend's house, another fully vaccinated friend's house who spent, uh, all the past quarantine year building the best home feeder system I've ever seen 85 inch screen and Dolby Atmos sound and uh, some, uh, and everybody brought Blu-rays to watch. And for some reason, the movie that everybody voted to watch and this new <laughs> setup was the emperor's new groove. The uh, new <laughs> Disney movie that, uh, has been a, a topic of discussion on this podcast is Ben hates it. while well, the rest of us <laughs> think it's, it's really funny. And you know what? Uh, half the people in that room had not seen Emperor's New Groove and everybody laughed a lot and had a great time with it. So it turns out that Ben continues to be in the minority on the Emperor's <laughs> New Groove. Yes. Uh, a place that I'm proud to be. <laughs> yeah, that's it for me. That's it. All right, Chris, what
0: have you been watching?
2: Uh, I watched Godzilla vs. Kong. Uh, my review is up on SlashFilm.com and I I had a lot of fun with this. Um, it's uh, I, I haven't been a big fan of the Monsterverse. I actually revisited the the 2014 Godzilla recently and I did not like that in theaters I like it a little better now um it's it's very well directed it has uh it it, it, it's a really good film for portraying how terrifying these monsters would be if they showed up and you know the way uh, the camera is always like at a low angle pointing up and it, it makes Godzilla and the other monsters, they're called like the, the butos or whatever, which is a dumb name, but I won't get into that, but it makes them look like imposing and scary and ancient, but the human characters are just fucking duds. Like, I don't care about any of them, especially like Aaron Taylor Johnson's character. Who's like, just like, Oh my God, I wanted him to like die, like step on him. Godzilla. I do not care about this fucking boring guy. And the human, the boring human thing has been a problem with, pretty much all of the monsterverse movies especially Godzilla King of the Monsters which i think is like the worst entry in the series but i had a lot of fun with this and i think the secret is um besides like you know the monster fights which are great they look great and unlike Godzilla King of the Monsters a lot of them are are like visible like anytime there was a monster fight in King of the Monsters like it starts to rain and it's like that's like clearly the effects team being like uh oh these effects aren't finished yet quick throw rain up here so mm-hmm. people can't tell how bad they look and there's none of that in godzilla vs. kong you can see exactly what's happening but outside of that the human stuff is is barely there and i'm almost positive they like screen tested the hell out of this thing and like cut the human stories down to the bare minimum to the point where they, like like the maximum amount of cutting, like if they cut any more, there would not even be humans in the film. Cause like uh, the humans are, like they're still boring, but they're boring in a way where it's like, we don't spend enough time with them for me to care that much. Like, uh, like, and, and uh, another thing I really liked about this is it's, it's ludicrous to the extreme. Like that first Godzilla film, the 2014 Godzilla film, I mean, you know, even though it's about giant monsters, it's still a movie that's sort of set in, the real world for lack of a better term. It's like the Batman begins approach where it's like, what if Batman existed in the real world? That first Godzilla movie is like, what if Godzilla existed in the real world? And this movie Godzilla versus Kong feels like it's from a completely different dimension because there's like stuff about like the hollow earth and just really goofball shit that like has no bearing. Like you could, you could watch that. 2014 Godzilla and be like, all right, I recognize this as the world I'm living in, except for the monsters. Whereas Godzilla versus Kong feels like it's like uh, completely removed from reality. And I honestly think that's working in the film's favor because it made me less concerned with how dumb everything was. And it, I embraced the dumbness. So it's a fun movie. It's entertaining. It's under two hours. Uh, you know, I had a lot of fun with Godzilla yeah. versus Kong.
0: Chris, over under ninety million people killed in the neon city battle,
2: yes, oh my God that, <laughs> that's the one thing that as cool as the the like the Godzilla I, I think it's in Hong Kong at the end where they're godzilla and, and Kong are fighting and it's there's all of these neon buildings, everything's gorgeous looking, but they keep smashing into buildings, and every time they do, I'm like, man, so many people are dying right now. <laughs> And no one like no one even like blinks to address it everyone's like whatever it's fine
0: yeah i saw i saw um somebody say in a review that one of the characters okay so so two characters i won't spoil uh who they are two characters in this movie are related and one of the characters dies and the other character who is related to that person does not react like at all to to that person's death so this movie is just like so unconcerned with uh with consequences to anything um it's much more concerned with like all the you know hyper like hyper non-realistic hollow earth nonsense that you're talking about so uh yeah it's a fun movie
2: yeah it's it's it is entertaining and it's it's pretty much what i what i wanted so Fun stuff. What I didn't want was the unholy, which is a new horror movie, uh, which I also reviewed. The review's up today. And look, I'm a, I'm a horror fan. I'm in the tank for horror, no matter what it is. And this is a religious horror film, and I love me some religious horror films. That, you know, they. You know, I grew up Catholic, so anytime there's a horror movie that that dips into Catholic iconography. I'm like, "Oh, this is good." I'm going to I'm going to look at this stuff and remember my my fucked up childhood. But this movie is just dull. It reminded me of uh back in the 1990s when when everyone was first really getting the internet and when I was first getting the internet. Uh I'm sure everyone remembers this. If not, I'm just going to give a break in love. There were these things called and I had to look this up because I didn't know they had an official name, but they were officially called internet screamers. And these were videos where they would look like a normal video and they they might have like a little a text at the bottom it says like turn your sound up and you start watching it and it looks harmless it looks like a car commercial and you're like why the what why am i even watching this and then at the very end of the video and it doesn't last long like probably less than a minute like a fucking ghoul face pops up and there's like loud blaring music and then you fall out of your chair i
3: remember that that was also like big in the early 2000s too like pre-youtube
2: yeah it was like the very very early days of like commercial internet, where no, we, we were all young and naive, and we had no idea how evil the internet could become.
0: Uh,
1: You'd see it on something like uh, on E-Bombs World if yes. ever remembers that. The, where, the Where's Waldo one is the one that got me in high school. It's a Where's Waldo map, but like, like a demon face jumped out at you when you were looking for Waldo,
2: like
3: creepy right. pasta kind of stuff.
2: Yeah, It's stuff like that. And so this movie is basically an adaptation of Internet Screamers, where nothing happens and then out of nowhere a fucking ghoul face flies into the screen and the soundtrack is like and it's like oh my god this is cheap bullshit
0: like it's completely unconnected to the story that's
2: told. it's connected but it's fucking dumb so (laughs) (laughs) like look i'm not anti-jump scare i think jump scares when they're done right can be incredibly effective like the most famous example is probably The exorcist three, there's a great jump scare in that. And like insidious has a great jump scare and they can be done really well. But then you have the really cheap jump scares, which are basically internet screamers where everything is normal. And then cool face into the camera. And, that's just so lazy and stupid. And I hate it. So this was not a good movie. I do not recommend The Unholy. But I do recommend you read my review because you should read everything I write, listener. Thank you. <laughs> and then finally, uh, I watched Hemingway, which is the new documentary from Ken Burns and Lynn Novick. And it's uh, it's about Ernest Hemingway. And it's a, a three-part documentary. And uh, I love Ken Burns stuff. I, you know, I, I watch, I've, I've seen pretty much all of it. And I was very curious about this because obviously I know who Ernest Hemingway is and I've read uh, his work and I have a general idea of his, you know, his personal story, but I didn't know like all the details and, and this, this filled them in and it's a fascinating look at him. And what I found really interesting about it is it doesn't, you know, it basically underlines the fact that for all his talent, Ernest Hemingway was a piece of shit and, you know, I don't think the documentary is trying to quote unquote cancel him, which is, you know, bullshit. And I don't want to get into anything like that, but I really appreciated that the documentary tried to find this balance between like, here's this guy, here are his life experiences. Here is his amazing writing, but also here is him just being a, a complete monster. And especially as he got older and, you know, uh, and there's something to be said about, how his personality deteriorated because he had like multiple concussions. He was in two plane crashes in, in like one day and he, he had uh you know, depression in his family. And there, there, you know, there's something to be said about his mental state deteriorating as he gets older and that contributing to his personality. But the docuseries also points out that even when he was younger, even before he had multiple concussions, you know, he was still just a piece of shit. And uh, I appreciated the approach they took here where they weren't trying to be like, you know, well, that's the end of Hemingway. We can't like Hemingway anymore because he was a monster. Mm-hmm. It's more about underscoring that, you know, this guy was a monument to writing. He did things in writing that no one had ever done before. And we need to appreciate that, but we shouldn't overlook the fact that he was kind of a piece of shit. And, um uh, yeah i just i I really dug it i think it premieres this weekend april 4th on like pbs or something like that
0: so you said it was three parts chris is it three hours or it's six hours actually wow yeah
2: so i watched i watched i didn't watch it all at once it's 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 the snyder cut of documentaries if you will (laughs) but yeah but i yeah if you're just curious about hemingway and if you just really like ken Burns stuff in general i i really recommend this uh hemingway
0: cool uh brad let's go to you what have you been watching
4: uh, so I watched uh, the second season of Solar Opposites. Uh, it hit Hulu last weekend. Uh, I know that pretty much this entire crew has not, not kept up with shows like Rick and Morty. Um, hasn't hasn't watched Solar Opposites. I, apparently, I'm the only one who likes to dig into uh, animated adult comedy from from Adult Swim, um, and I, I'm so glad that I do. Um, you know, this is uh, again. This is on Hulu, not Adult Swim, but it's from Justin Roiland, who uh, is the co-creator of Rick and Morty, and uh, Mike McMahon, who used to be a writer on the show. And uh, this season, it's, it delivers more of the same of the first season for sure, but it but it gets a little bit crazier, um, and it, it continues to dig into what is probably the best part of the the, the first season and and maybe the entire show, um, which is this uh, subplot, essentially a second show that exists within Solar Opposites that takes place inside of this post-apocalyptic society um, of shrunken down people that are being kept in this very complex wall-sized hamster kind of environment that is um, just full of humans who have been shrunken down that uh, one of the younger aliens named Yumulak just watches and observes every now and then. And so there's this whole kind of uh, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids meets Mad Max uh, society within this wall and th- that story continues in the second season but uh, the first one like treated it as kind of like this epic revolution kind of uh, story where where there was a, a revolt against the, the um, de facto leader within the wall and this one kind of shifts gears a little bit um, so that the genre is something kind of akin to uh, The Wire uh, which is it's just so much fun and like it's uh, it, the stuff that happens inside the wall is good enough to be like a show on its own, but combined with the, the, the insane, you know, wild, twisted sci-fi antics of Solar Opposites, it just creates this great dichotomy and like, they don't directly feed into each other. They they kind of exist on their own. There are, there's some things that happen outside that instigate what happens inside, but not often in a, in a very just tangential way. Um, and just the show just continues to to be hilarious to me. It's, it's full of, um, just fast paced, uh, and witty, like pop culture references, completely grotesque sci-fi, uh, creatures and, and violence. And I just, I just love the characters and how, uh, they bounce off of each other. And it's, it has a, you know, Rick and Morty flair, but it just, it just still stands on its own in a different enough way, uh, largely thanks to the, the presence of the wall. And so if uh, if you're out there, if you, if you haven't given Solar Opposites a shot, uh, the, the seasons are breezy, eight episodes, uh, around 22 minutes each. So uh, get, just give it a watch on Hulu. I can't recommend it enough. Um, I also got around to watching the last Blockbuster on Netflix. Uh, Peter talked about this recently, and he said that the documentary is basically what you expect it to be, um, except I expected it to be a little bit better, and I was kind of disappointed by it because... Uh, it has a very low-rent vibe to it. It feels this feels like it could have been a lot better. Um, and I wish that the filmmakers could have, I don't know, gotten some bigger names and, uh, I don't know, more prominent filmmakers to talk about uh, the nostalgia of video stores and, like, the rise and fall of Blockbuster and all stuff because while there are some interesting people throughout the documentary – it it just feels like it's um like it's just missing something and like because it's a lower budget thing there's stuff that just kind of frustrated me like it's it feels like it's very hastily put together as far as the editing is concerned like it it chronicles the rise and fall of blockbuster but then it has these seemingly random interludes about just little like tidbits of, of trivia and just side things where it feels like oh well let's just toss this in here somewhere and not really have any connective tissue to like keep a, a natural flow of the narrative going through it. Um, so it's it's interesting to see the operation of what is the last blockbuster uh, woven throughout the movie, but it's just it's so shoddily put together. And there's even I I'm sure this is because they couldn't afford the actual songs, but there's use mm-hmm. of the song uh, "All Star" by Smash Mouth um, and uh, "Kiss Me" uh, in the, the style of "Sixpence None the Richer." But there's some su- they're covers done by the um at least one of the filmmakers behind the movie doing it with um a, a band. and they sound like adult pop versions is the best way I can describe <laughs> how they they sound like just the like just terrible karaoke versions. And what's weird is that for for some some reason, they even got the guitarist of Smash Mouth as somebody who comments on Blockbuster in this movie. And that's just one of the random people that is in this movie for no explicable reason. Another one, including the lead singer of Savage Garden. So I don't know if the directors of this movie, maybe because they have a band that they're like, uh, I don't know, locally famous and they've opened for some of these bands. So they had like connections (laughs) with them and maybe were like, oh yeah, let's bring them in here because they're moderately famous to be in this movie. Um, And then there's like, uh, Lloyd Kaufman is in this movie too, and he has a super hate for blockbuster to the point where it doesn't seem like they were really able to get much of anything from him to talk about this. Especially because the way the interview is framed, like they ask Lloyd Kaufman to uh, say who he is and like so that people know, and that makes Lloyd Kaufman think that the filmmakers don't actually know who he is, and he seems kind mm. of pissed off about it, um, and in a very curmudgeonly way. And so, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's. It, I don't, don't want to say like I hated this movie, but I just wanted so much more uh, from it. And so, even though it has enjoyable aspects, I was just like, man, this this could have been so much better.
0: I'm still hung up on you uh, on the pun of the last blockbuster being low rent, Brad. I think it's
4: pretty great. <laughs> Unintentional, but you're welcome. <laughs> um, what else did I watch? Oh, I, I got around to also watching uh, To All the Boys I've Loved Before, Always and Forever. The third installment of the uh, teen romantic comedy franchise on Netflix. Uh, my girlfriend had been wanting to watch this for a while and I, we kept you know putting it off and we finally got around to it. Um, and I enjoyed this for, for the most part. It was a, a, a solid uh, conclusion. I, I think for some reason, I feel like it maybe lacked a little bit of the, the cleverness of the first movie. It, it wasn't quite as fun. It got, it got a little bit more, serious since the you know the the story itself is about the this couple um possibly you know breaking up uh Lara jean and peter and so it's um it's still pretty good but it's it felt like maybe it could have just been spiced up a little bit by just a little bit more um lightheartedness and and humor uh so as an ending to the the franchise i think it was it was solid but as a romantic comedy by itself i I think I wanted a little bit more of that, uh, that comedy along, uh, with the romance. HT, you, 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 enjoy this franchise for the most part, right? What did, what did you think of the end?
3: Uh, yeah, I, I think it was, uh, it was charming, but it was uh, obviously a little bit lesser than like the first one. I think it's, it's better than the second for sure. Um, and yeah, the comedy hasn't really been a part of the, of the, to all the boys franchise to begin with but uh, yeah it felt um, it felt like it lacked some of the zest of the first original one
4: yeah, I because I, yeah, like the first one wasn't like laugh out loud funny but I felt like it had these like this charming moments that made for at least a little bit of like um, more amusing things and, and and this one just got more serious I guess um, And then speaking of comedy um, I also watched a new stand-up special from Nate Bargatze. Uh I talked about his stand-up special the Tennessee Kid before. Uh, and he has a new special out on Netflix. Uh, interestingly enough, this is a special that was recorded uh, during the pandemic. And it was shot outdoors on the Universal Studios backlot, uh, which is interesting because throughout the special, um, a few times you hear helicopters flying overhead in, in Los Angeles, which is very common. And uh, he he always has like, uh, he has like a, basically like a running commentary about the helicopters. And it, it adds just like, a funny, you know, candid, uh, improvised part to, to his, uh, his entire set. Um, but this is a, a, another great special from Bergetzi. Uh He's become one of my new favorite comedians. Um, and surprisingly enough, what's, what's cool about Nate Bergazzi is that, um, he's, he's actually like a, a comedian that is very family friendly. And I don't know if it's intentional or if this is just, um, how he works, but he's totally clean. Um, he doesn't like swear or anything like that. And it's, you know, it's a lot of observational, you know, personal comedy. And it, for with Nate Bargatze it's just the way he tells, uh, stories and observations. He's very, um, dry, very wry. And he kind of plays, uh, dumb a little bit, but not in a way that is like, uh, goofy dumb, like not Larry, the cable guy dumb or anything like that. Um, it's, it's very clever. And just the, his, his cadence and the, the way he says things uh is where a, a lot of uh the the humor comes from but uh very funny he's called the greatest average american so uh, if you haven't seen any of his stuff he's um he's got like i said another special on netflix and he's got an episode in the netflix series the the standups. great uh
0: ht what have you been watching
3: so I'm in the process of attending an early press day for Luca, the new Pixar film that's coming out this summer. Um, and uh, we talked about early press days before, so I won't go into what kind of like junket that is. But uh, I got to see 30 minutes of footage from the movie, uh, which I can talk about and uh, give my brief impressions for the free. Uh, this is a movie that is directed by uh, Enrico Casarosa, who directed the uh, Pixar short La Luna. And this is his first feature film, and it's set on the Italian Riviera, Riviera uh, in the 1950s, and follows a pair of sea monsters who um, decide to uh, venture out into the human world and uh, learn what it is to be to be boys for a little bit. It's a coming of age, sweet, nostalgic movie, and the mov- it, movie, the footage I saw is is so so charming. It's really lovely. It's got this. Um, stylized, uh, flair to it that feels very simple and, and, and feels like it's fitting with that nostalgia too, kind of, of that 1950s aesthetic. And, um, it reminded me a lot of Studio Ghibli Hayao Miyazaki films. I feel like I say that a lot about films that I like, which doesn't mean that I think that Studio Ghibli movies are the be all end all of animated films. I kind of do, but I think in a way that this, uh, managed to emulate a Studio Ghibli film in that sort of um, purity and nostalgia and whimsy, like that, that sort of magical feeling that uh, feels very much of childhood, and it reminds me very specifically of Kiki's Delivery Service, for example, uh, which is in the vein of Miyazaki's sort of uh, European-looking films that have that nostalgic quality. It's a Paris of the mind. Um, aspect that I've talked about before on the podcast and it it feels basically like a cross between Kiki's Delivery Service meets Call Me By Your Name very sweet very lovely Um, I'm excited to see uh, where it goes so far I'm actually like really excited about this movie uh, more so than I I thought I was intrigued by it at first but um, after seeing the footage and uh, seeing some of the stuff from the early press day stuff um, I'm actually more excited than I was before so make that make of that what you will
0: and then well so let's see that, this is one of those movies that was recently announced as going directly to Disney plus right like for free without the, without
3: premiere the premier access. access which is a real shame because they obviously put a lot of work into this movie. Uh, I can't go into the details of what they of, of all that work so far, but it's it's a one of the more unique looking Pixar films I think and it's a real shame that it won't be shown in theaters or even getting given the premier access pay bump
0: all right well that comes to disney plus on june 18th so uh, add that to your watch lists now um ht what else have you been watching
3: uh, I've been on a Tony Lung streak, apparently, because I decided to watch Infernal Affairs for the first time. I thought that this was streaming on Paramount Plus. Um, I watched it through the Amazon sort of add on thing. And um, I'd always been meaning to watch this. This is, this is the movie uh, directed by Andrew Lau, it stars Tony Lung and Andy Lau. It came out in 2002. It's the first in a trilogy of movies, the Infernal Affairs trilogy. And it's the basis for the Martin Scorsese Oscar. Nominate Oscar, Oscar winning? Oscar winning. Yes.
0: yes. I, think he, yeah. I think it won Best Picture, right? Yeah, yes. And it, he
2: won Best Director, too.
3: Oscar winning movie, The Departed. And um, I don't know what the temperature is on Infernal Affairs versus The Departed, uh, whether everyone here has seen both films, but... I liked Infernal Affairs better than The Departed. Get <laughs> yeah, out! Actually, I,
2: I actually have not seen Infernal Affairs. Actually,
3: I I really really liked it, and I I'm familiar with all the beats of The Departed. It's not one of my favorite Scorsese movies, to be honest. Um, I liked it. It's a great film. It's you know it's Scorsese. I'm not going to knock a master, but I just found myself more emotionally connected to Infernal Affairs. Like all the beats, all of the the thrills and uh, like edge of thrills, just kind of was able to grip me more in Infernal Affairs and I think it's a combination of sort of that the sentiment the sort of melodrama that comes with especially a lot of like these Hong Kong action movies uh it has it's it's pretty sentimental the end of the movie over the credits the two leads sing a a duet so like that's an indication for how like they really value emotion and it can be that kind of emotion can be overwrought for some Western viewers, but I really, really enjoyed that. And he, Wait,
2: do they – because in the part, everyone dies. Are they singing even though they're dead in this no, version? No, no,
3: it's like the actor singing. It's not oh. actors.
2: <laughs> oh, I thought you meant there was like the characters. Which would like, be up, amazing. Like, with like bullet holes in their heads no. and sort of singing.
3: <laughs> no, but yeah, the actors sing a duet. But – um I I just I really liked it and I think it also has the benefit of having um so Andy Lau plays the counterpart from Matt Damon's character and he is just miles and miles away better than Matt Damon's performance in that role. I found I feel like Matt Damon uh when he was cast in The Departed was sort of on the cusp of figuring out who he was as a leading man. He didn't really have a handle on what kind of charisma, what kind of brand he was as a leading man actor. And thus he kind of gets overshadowed by the rest of the cast who is just like so great, like Jack Nicholson, Leonardo DiCaprio. Everyone is just acting their socks off. Um, And Matt Damon is just kind of getting a little overshadowed. And he feels kind of like a flatter character because of that. Uh, But Andy Lau, who plays that sort of mole within the police uh, force, uh, does so much more that you feel like he is a turmoil character and you see a lot more of what he's struggling with and how you kind of feel some sort of empathy for him but at the same time you don't trust him and he's great Tony lung always fantastic i talked about his face earlier here he plays a man who's just like unraveling at the edges and you're really frightened for how if he stays in this situation any longer if he will just like die from the stress he's great um all the before the supporting actors are great um i highly recommend infernal affairs if you have seen the departed and if you love it um, and i want to see where you fall in that line anyone else like have any say on infernal affairs versus the departed
0: i haven't seen infernal affairs yet i'm, I'm excited to check it out especially after this recommendation
3: yeah all right uh so next uh, last i watched the 1950 Father of the Bride, uh, which I have seen the Steve Martin version and I enjoyed it like way back when I first saw it. Um, and it's, it's the 1950 Father of the Bride stars Spencer Tracy, has Elizabeth Taylor, and it's a lot of fun. Like Spencer Tracy in in particular is, is really, really fun to watch. He's just got... I don't know, like that charisma, that charm. He feels like that that father who's just like completely beleaguered and losing it. And he plays that role so well that it's just, even as the the film is very much a product of its time and feels a little bit antiquated in a lot of ways, watching Spencer Tracy play this father whose daughter's getting married and uh, everything is going wrong, all, hi- all kind of hijinks ensue, the wedding is just way too extravagant and, and expensive. Watching him, Uh, throughout all that is just uh worth watching and father the bride is streaming now on hbo max
0: excellent all right let's go into what we've been eating brad what uh crazy things have you been eating recently
4: Ooh, the wackiest stuff so many wacky things actually somewhat wacky things um i so i'm continuing my uh adventures of coffee creamers now that i am uh, a regular coffee drinker thanks to my keurig um, is it Keurig? Keurig? I don't know. I forget. Anyway, um, so this year, I think I've talked about this before. This year is like the 50th anniversary of Fruity Pebbles and Cocoa Pebbles. And so Post is doing like a bunch of different things with both cereals. Uh, and one of the things that they did is release uh, coffee creamers for both Fruity Pebbles and Cocoa Pebbles. And I haven't gotten the Cocoa Pebbles one yet, but I did uh, get the Fruity Pebbles one. I was hesitant because I just wasn't sure if the flavor of Fruity Pebbles would mesh well with. Coffee, it just felt like a strange combination. And, um, a a reader and uh podcast listener from Slash Film who follows me on Twitter had um reached out to tell me that he had found it and that he didn't like it at all. Um, but one of my good friends uh told me that it was delicious, so I was like, hmm, okay. So he and he brought it over for me to try before I actually dove and got a bottle myself because uh, I actually Really like this a lot. Um, the the fruity pebbles flavor actually does mix well with the coffee. At least the one the ones that I have, it's uh, it's a nice mix. It's um, the fruity pebbles flavor isn't overpowering. It's just mixed well enough um, to where you get the the flavor of it. And it's just, uh, I, that's just all I can say about it, is that I actually like the the mix of the flavors. And so uh, I'm curious about the Coco pebbles one because I feel like um, I haven't been super keen on the combinations of chocolate and coffee that I've had before. Um, but like I said, I was wrong about the Fruity Pebbles mixing with the coffee. So um, speaking of chocolate and coffee, though, one that I did enjoy uh, that I just found was a Snickers coffee creamer. Um, and it has a, uh, a fantastic blend of the, the chocolate, caramel, um, and peanuts um, with, with the coffee, I think that since it's not just chocolate that maybe that might be why I enjoy it more since, you know, caramel is a pretty common mix with coffee flavors. And so uh that one was pretty good. It um infinitely better than the uh Snickers milk that is out there that exists. That is not not good at all. Mm. Uh yeah, just too salty <laughs> because of the peanuts and uh not good, but uh yeah, Snickers coffee creamer. Good in my opinion. Um, and then, uh, I've been mixing up my, my mornings every now and then, um, instead of h- having coffee th- because Mountain Dew has a new line of energy drinks, uh, they're called Mountain Dew Rise. Uh, they have six new flavors. I was able to find them all at the grocery store recently, um, uh, but I've only tried three of the flavors so far since I've just been kind of gradually, uh, making my way through them. Um, so the ones that I've tried so far are, um, Tropical Sunrise, which is a pineapple one. Uh, peach mango dawn, where the flavor is pretty um, self-explanatory, and berry blitz, which is like a, a mixed berry uh, sort of flavor. Um, tropical sunrise, peach mango dawn are great. I'm definitely a fan of tropical flavored soft drinks like this. Normally, I am not a big fan of berry flavored kinds of things. I don't really like. Uh, I like strawberry, but I don't really like blueberry or raspberry, um, or you know anything like that for the most part when it comes to drinks. Uh, but I will say the berry blitz flavor was decent. It's my least favorite one that I've tried so far, but it kind of reminded me of blue Pepsi from back in the day, which is something that I really enjoyed, which also goes against the grain of my preferences for berry flavors. Uh, but it was, it was pretty decent. And, um, there's a slight difference as far as like the soft drink taste. Cause they don't taste like flat out Mountain Dew since they are, you know, energy drinks they're, they're meant to have, uh, you know, they have like extra vitamins in them and zinc and stuff like that. And it has, uh, the can claims to have caffeine equal to roughly two cups of coffee. So it's not quite just like drinking a regular, you know, soda pop, soft drink kind of thing. Uh, but so far so good. These flavors are good. I have three other ones to try and I'm sure I'll talk about them, uh, on the next edition of the water cooler. Um, and then, uh, one, one last thing I'll talk about, um, is I got a, um, a mighty ducks, Uh, promo package for the Game Changer series that is available now um, on Disney+. And they included uh, a batch of like healthy-ish snacks uh, that were um, created in Minnesota, which is where the Mighty Ducks franchise and the series take place. And so uh, one of the ones that I wanted to talk about was because it was so good is this thing from TC Chocolate. It's maple toffee, and it has a very thin layer of chocolate on it. This is, like, the best toffee uh, that I have ever had um it is uh very crisp and um the the taste is just so like full the chocolate is uh not overwhelming it's subtle enough that it just like adds a little bit to the toffee itself but man uh this toffee is so good so if you uh, you can order it online from the tc chocolate website uh i would recommend getting it if you're a toffee fan because it's delicious
0: All right, and then into the what we've been playing section. Brad, what have you been playing recently?
4: Yeah, just one. uh, I'll just talk about this real quick because it's just such a a small thing that I've just been kind of having fun gaming uh, by myself. Um, And that's uh, Super Mario 64. And I mentioned this because um, I've been playing this by way of Super Mario uh, 3D All-Stars, which was, it's a Nintendo Switch title that has Super Mario 64, Super Mario Sunshine, and Super Mario Galaxy. Um, And it actually is, they made it, they basically made artificial scarcity uh, for it a thing because it was released in September of last year. And as of yesterday, it's now what won't be available anymore. You can still buy whatever copies there are out there on store shelves and stuff like that. But after March 31st, like they're not going to be making any new copies, it's not available to buy in the Nintendo Digital Game Store. Or anything like that, and so I, I got my hands on this a while back because I knew I would want to play these games on the Switch. And I, when I was younger, I didn't have my own Nintendo sixty four. One of my best friends did, and so I always played it on his. And I never played through the game in its entirety. I played through a decent chunk of it, watched him play it, and so I was, I'm fairly familiar with a lot of the levels, but I never got to play through the full game on my own. And that's been really fun this time to actually just dig into the game, get all the stars myself, uh, make my way through the levels, you know, remember things that I had, uh, forgotten and discover things, you know, that I didn't get to do myself, uh, the the first time around when playing it before. So it's, uh, I honestly think that it's the best Mario game of all time. Not only was it just, you know, a game changer, literally, uh, because of the, you know, how groundbreaking Nintendo 64 was at the time, but just the gameplay is, you know, it's still kind of the cornerstone for what super Mario games are today. So, uh, yeah, super Mario 64, two thumbs up.
0: Awesome. All right. I think that's going to bring us to the end of today's episode of Slash Film Daily. This podcast is published every weekday, bringing you the most exciting news from the world of movies and TV, as well as deeper dives into the great features you can find on the site. You can subscribe to this show on Apple, Google, Overcast, Spotify, all of the popular podcast apps and send your feedback, questions, comments, concerns and mailbag topics to us at Peter at Slash uh, please make sure to leave your name and general geographic location in case we mention your email on the air. Don't forget to rate and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts. Tell your friends, spread the word. Thank you all for listening and we will talk to you next time.
1: Hey, Ben. Hey, yes. Um, Today's April Fool's Day. Yes, it is. So this is normally when I open up the gargantuan book of It's All Offense of Infrontary by Lewis A. Safian, but it's April Fool's Day. I can't do that. I get, I get to do the opposite. <laughs>
0: okay, well, what on earth is the opposite? What uh, is the book. Is
1: <laughs> no, that is to go on the internet and search for nicest things to say to people and go to mantelligence.com slash compliments. Wow. Uh, okay. Intelligence. Okay. Mantelligence. The article, Man-telligence? Man-telligence. Yeah. The, article uh, the byline is by Jasper. Um, Just uh, Jasper. We all know him. Yeah, Thanks, man. Jasper. Uh, hey, Ben, I bet you make babies smile. You're recognizing Whoa. the positivity that shines out of this person. Okay. All right. Thank you. you have impeccable manners. Good manners of the ultimate form of courtesy and consideration of others.
2: All right. Thank you, Jasper.
1: Brad, your perspective is refreshing. This is a powerful affirmation for a person who is brave enough to share their ideas, even if they might be unpopular at first.
4: Yeah, that sounds like my views.
1: (laughs) HT, you should be proud of yourself. You're letting your loved one know that their accomplishment is worthy. I think we need a few more. Uh, Ben, you're more helpful than you realize. This is a great one to reassure our friends that they are appreciated even beyond what they are aware of. Is that second part, like, in parentheses, like, to the compliment giver? Like, hey, here's a
0: little...
4: You know what I'm saying? You give it it along with a compliment so they they know why it's a good compliment. (laughs) Okay, Chris, you've got all the right moves. This is a great
1: all-around affirmation. It can cover anything from steps (laughs) taken in a procedure to dance steps.
2: (laughs) Oh, all right.
1: Brad, you're even more beautiful on the inside than you are on the outside. During a time when many of us fear being seen only for what's on the surface, it is especially valuable to let others know that you perceive what may go unspoken and unseen by others. And finally, HT, when you're not afraid to be yourself uh, is when you're most incredible. It helps that we all encourage each other to be honest, authentic selves. Fear and insecurity can cloud an endeavor. And when we all benefit from affirming, affirming each other, that we are enough.
4: Wow.
2: <sighs> April <All right>. fools.
1: <laughs> ben, if you were a box of crayons, oh, <laughs> you'd be the giant name brand one with a built-in sharpener. Try on some metaphorical humor to express your compliment. Words. no. Try on some medical humor. Medical, try on some metaphorical humor to express your compliment, and produce a smile.
2: You know, I I like this. This is very positive. And I, I, uh, I
1: I could keep going. This is like there's like literally a hundred of these. Uh, well, there oh, are 82 of them. 82 best awesome compliments is the name of the article.
2: What an odd number of. Well,
1: technically, it's manintelligence.com/slash/compliments. <laughs> Jasper. <laughs>